Hello, everybody. This is House Brother. Um, we would like to start this episode with a dedication to a fallen member of our community. Um, his name is Brandon Finkelstein. He went to the Family Foundation School when I was there. He was an amazing kid while he was there. He was outgoing and friendly with everybody, and he will definitely be missed within our community. Um, I have a, a mutual friend of ours here with me. Uh, his name is Tom, who wanted to also share his insight into Brandon's passing. Hey, everybody, and thanks for having me. Um, I was in family two with Brandon. Um, for, uh, I believe most or all of his stay. Um, Brandon was somebody who, I mean, every time he walked in a room, he just had this way of lighting everybody up. He was extraordinarily funny. He was outgoing. Um, he was a great friend to all of us. Um, Brandon, as, as, as all of us do, had our issues while we were at the school. And, you know, I'm sure after he left... Um, unfortunately I fell out of touch with him, but, um, I was privileged enough to spend a lot of time with him and watch him grow over the course of his stay in family too. Um, I, uh, man, he just knew how to make a room laugh. He was, he was a hysterical kid and, um, you know, as, as many issues as, as we may have had, uh, he never brought them to the public eye very much. Um, he was always... Um, somebody you could rely on, somebody that you could trust. And, uh, he, he was an extraordinary person. Um, it's a shame that after all this time, um, it seems that, um, we keep losing student after student. And, uh, uh, as it's a shame to lose anybody, it's certainly a shame to, um, recognize Brandon's loss. Um. He will certainly be missed by everybody who knew him, uh, past and present family school. Um, so rest in peace, Brand. We're going to miss you, bud. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our, is this our fifth episode, sixth. Miranda? It's our sixth episode. Uh, thanks for joining, everyone. Um, we first um, want to say thank you so much for all the support. Uh, we've got a lot of Twitter followers. We hit a thousand total plays in, and it's only been like two and a half months. Mm -hmm. So spread the love, share the podcast, share the Twitter. Um, what's the handle, Miranda? We're Talk Troubled on Instagram and Twitter. And then we're also on Facebook, The Troubled Podcast. And obviously the podcast itself is everywhere that you cast your pods. We're going to drop those links. We can do that, right? We're still figuring this out. Yeah, and also, like, <laughs> we're in the land of Google, you guys, so we have total faith we're in you. You'll find us. We're on Reddit, but as ourselves, all of us individually. Um, thanks to Rose at the Timeout Room and all these people that have been sharing, so we just want to thank you for that. Today, we have a very interesting episode, probably our second most interesting episode, because I think House Brother was pretty great. Yeah. Um, personally monumental to both of us. I mean, come on, you guys, like yes. we're rounding out the family three trio here with house brother. Yes. 
Oh, we should also, Ooh. I don't think we mentioned this. We posted about it on Facebook, but House Brother is officially coming on as a co-host. Yes, welcome, House Brother. Um, welcome, House Brother. Um, he's going to participate in, in episodes. I'm hoping he's going to do his own episodes. Who knows? The world is our oyster. He's going to bring in some amazing content. Um, mm. Also, we've had conversations with him, and it's been really healing for him. Exactly. He's, like, overcome some crazy stuff. Which is the purpose, right? The, which was like the yeah. whole purpose behind this. And we wanted to be as so, inclusive as possible. Like we weren't just throwing around this concept of inclusivity. Um, that's genuinely the purpose. So the fact that someone that we know personally that went, we went through this personally in real time with also finds this healing. We were just totally thrilled and we're glad that he's going to bring the masculine perspective because that's something we briefly touched on in his episode at the end. Um, but it's something that's so important nowadays is that our brothers have some sort of safe space to have these conversations. Yeah. And we've gotten so many messages from people who want to come on and, you know, we're getting there. Um, you know, we have lives outside of the podcast, so we're, we're getting there. We'll get to you. Um, but we want you to keep writing in and keep sharing um, your experience. Um, and you can leave and... us messages directly so you can speak for yourself, which this is our first yes. episode where we're going to hear from you. We've got a lot of contributions coming in from Reddit and our sole survivor sister, Rose Cardella, from the timeout room as well. Yeah, Rose, we love you. Um, okay, let's get into it. We've got uh, the author, Elizabeth Soden, has wrote a book. Um, she's an author out in the, out in, um, where does she live in Minneapolis? Yeah. So Elizabeth um, Soudan, and she's a fiction writer. This yes. is not a survivor testimonial. The book is called tough love at mystic. So Bay. mystic Bay is a and combo. You guys it's tranquility Bay. And I think Casa by the sea, but we'll get in there with her when she gets on. We'll get in there. People who are not survivors of these specific programs or maybe just like, you know, cause there's so many friggin' programs might not know what that is, but um, you know, Google is your friend. You can look it up. <laughs> there's been a little bit of controversy about how she's not a survivor writing this book. And you know, her sources for the information and, but we're going to talk to Elizabeth and, um, you know, we're going to find out, we're going to find out everything. Yeah. We're a from the horse's mouth kind of person and a little bit of controversy. Meredith is so sweet. A little bit. This is a big deal. You guys, <laughs> like we get triggered within our own community by each other telling stories that either we were also present for or include us or we weren't included. There's a whole part of that traumatic experience in owning one story, especially one that isn't publicly validated, right? Yeah. So for someone yeah. to come on the scene with a fiction book, I mean, duh, we expect there to be a reaction. Um, and we'd really, really hope that we can address all of your concerns very directly in an open forum like Trouble. That's part of the, our purpose here. And thankfully, some of you spoke for yourself as well. So, um, we, you know, we we don't speak for anyone but ourselves. And obviously, Meredith and I alone, we don't we can't possibly represent the entirety of the complexity of Survivor World. Yeah. And I also want to mention that, like, uh, Elizabeth is uh, self-publishing this. She's not backed by, like, you know, Simon and Schuster. But I also think it's a good thing that, you know, people are, uh, you know, we've had over the past I want to say decade more stories like this, like uh, that movie that came out with um, the miseducation of Cameron Post was kind of, I mean, this, that was more of a gay conversion story. Uh, this girl in the movie got sent to a gay conversion, you know, religious camp and, you know, but that, I think that's still a valid story. I think 
Um, I think even people who aren't survivors bringing our stories to the fold and telling these stories is a good thing. You know, obviously there's, obviously there's controversy that comes with these kinds of things. Um, and genuine concerns, of course, and And we're definitely excited to get there today. We're definitely excited to get there, but I just, I think also that, you know, not, I think that it's, um, just important to, acknowledge that it's good to get these stories told and right. to bring the awareness to the to the forefront of the conversation. If we want to have general awareness and we don't want this to be some sort of open secret like haunting us, then we have to understand that there will be fictional expressions of our true stories. Um, yeah. But that being said, hopefully uh, with this conversation that we're about to have with Elizabeth Soudan, maybe we can kind of set a standard of how that conversation should be, especially in a case like this, where these are real testimonies used for a fictional novel instead of just a complete fictional fabrication. We do want to make sure that there is an ethical standard when representing communities such as ourselves. Um, and so hopefully hopefully we'll walk out of this with uh, one new ally in Elizabeth and uh, millions of allies after they've read her book um, and everything else that the survivor community itself has to offer. Okay. I think that that's wonderful. And I think let's talk to Elizabeth now. Let's get it. Let's get in with it. Okay, you guys ready? Let's go. All right. Uh, Hi, everyone. Welcome, Elizabeth Soudan to Troubled. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Um, Okay. Um, So I think we're going to start off by just getting like the facts out. Like about the book. Um, So we have Elizabeth on our podcast because she just wrote a book. So Elizabeth, tell us what's your book called? Let's, uh, yeah. So the title of the book is Tough Love at Mystic Bay. It's about a woman who is haunted by the trauma that she endured at a program for troubled teens in the late 90s. And um, the main character's name is Grace, and she's an executive chef. She's very successful, but she doesn't connect with people because she has this past that she is afraid to share with people and so she lives a very solitary life and so this book is about her struggle to unlearn harsh lessons and rediscover friendship awesome well look who has her elevator pitch down pat <laughs> thank you so uh, what uh do you have a psych background as well um sort of i mean i took a psychology course in college Um, It was led by a professor named Marvin Frankel, who was a very brilliant man. He passed away a couple of years ago. Um, The course I took was basically a study of inhumanity from a psychological perspective. So we read about the Holocaust and various um, cults. Like we read about Jonestown and things like that. And we read about the Stanford Prison Experiment. It's an experiment that happened in the 1970s where a psychology professor at Stanford asked several of his graduate students to become either prisoners or prison guards. And over a very short period of time, they all fell into these roles where um, they kind of forgot who they are. And the kids who were being prisoners 
forgot that they weren't actually in prison and the people who were guarding them also forgot that they weren't actually prison guards and it led to some very interesting and scary behavior on the part of the guards. So having that background definitely informed my writing. It also sparked my interest in the trouble team industry. Okay, so Mare, um, are you mm-hmm. into and familiar with Philip Zimbardo and the Stanford Prison Experiment? Um, a little bit. Okay. Not probably to the extent of both of you. Okay, <laughs> so she brought it up. So, like, we need to yeah. at least um, touch on that. So I just took a social psych course um, by Scott Plouse from Wesleyan, who uh, studied under Philip Zimbardo. Um, and Philip Zimbardo yeah. has a books, documentaries, um, and there's – go to the StanfordPrisonExperiment.org. Yeah, I feel like I watched the documentary like years ago. Yeah, you probably did. I think a lot of us did. And and that's it, this is behavior modification. This is social psychology. So um, El- yeah. Elizabeth was the social psychology element, uh, the way that people do in-group, out-group, and um, you know, behavior modification, part of what you guys were studying in school as well. Definitely. Um, so we talked a lot about you know, why people react the way they do to things. And um, I brought up this example on Rose's podcast, and I know it seems kind of extreme to keep bringing up the Holocaust, but it is relevant, not being, you know, overdramatic here, um, that when when the Nazis first asked the Jewish people to comply with certain things like wearing the star and moving to ghettos, um, people did it because they thought, well, if we just appease them maybe they'll leave us alone and that kind of thinking I think is very it's very common and it's also very relevant to situations like this because I think a lot of the time you know a lot of what happens to teenagers when they're taken to these programs is they don't know immediately what's facing them it's just that they kind of slowly get introduced to um these weird things that they're asked to do and it's like okay well if I just work this program then they'll let me out of here when really you know programs are trying to make money and want to keep people in as long as possible Mm. Mm. I feel that right (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, And the Stanford prison experiment is so important. I really do hope that anyone listening will, if they're not, if they're, if they're just cursory American style familiar with the concept of what the Stanford prison experiment is, definitely check out their website and deep dive because so much grew out of that, right? So Philip Zimbardo shut his experiment down six days in when one of his, I think she was an undergrad student at the time, but became his wife after because smart ass woman, she was like, this is completely unethical and you need to stop this now. Um, And what is awesome is that's what created today's standards for ethical experimentation in social psychology and psychology programs. Right. And, and in all these mm-hmm. lab experiments that they do. And also um, I, I believe, and I might be wrong about this and Elizabeth, you may know, I believe it was the young man who I, I forget his prison number who refused to conform and wound up on the hunger strike and everything that, actually became a social psychology um, professor as well um, and set up a bunch of nonprofits to support people as well. So, so much good came out of this boopsie. But what's fascinating is how the hell was the Stanford prison experiment considered so unethical and such 
like abject tor- like torture and shut down after six days for crimes against human rights, like human rights violations galore on these voluntary like uh, college age students when this is happening across the country with youth and it's totally legal and it's not torture and it's not abuse and all it is is like what strict it's just strictness. Right. That's a good So question. what, yeah. Like what's the difference um, in the civil rights? Is there an age requirement? Like, do we not have civil rights before 18? Um, I think it's very, well, I guess Elizabeth could s- state to that. I mean, um, I don't know. I guess I haven't. Yeah. I think our, your rights are different. You don't get to vote till you're 18. You know, you can't buy cigarettes till you're 18, you know? Well, it seems like, you know, the university setting is very different from the the setting for the average program because, you know, universities are very public. You know, they have to publish their findings. They have to be peer-reviewed in their work. And whereas, you know, like a WASP program is, you know, in the middle of nowhere and, you know, some like empty logging former logging town that has no way to survive like sustain itself and so it becomes like the so the school becomes its entire workforce and so um people have no reason to question what goes on right well and on a larger level than that like how much money did utah pull in tax-wise off of these programs last year we were talking millions i think it was like 40 percent of what they made so gross Right. So they have no invested interest in potentially shutting these down, not even just shutting these down. But if they were to moderate them and to cut down on the abuses, then, you know, you're not going to have as many kids going. You're going to make far less money. I mean, what what's their? Of course, like that's the whole point. These things exist. I mean, that's why Mitt Romney's invested in it. But um, my my question, Elizabeth, would be what? um because I know you said in Rose's podcast that you wrote this, you started writing a book about a church, a church camp. And then this topic kind of manifested into what, because what you, what we have the book as now, and it manifested because you started learning about the troubled teen industry and you were fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. It's on the journey. (laughs) So, yeah, so I initially did want to write about a church camp that becomes a cult because I went to church camp when I was a teenager. I think I went for about three years, starting when I was 13, ending when I was 16. And by my last year, I was completely disillusioned with it. Um, And they did had us do some stuff that looking back seems really weird. Um, You know, I talked about on Rose's podcast how they made us talk about death one day and I remember thinking you know what for this like nobody has recently died the only reason we're talking about it is because you want us to all get sad um, yeah and additionally there were things like the moving prayer which was like musical chairs but with hugs and so you go around hugging everybody until they turn the music off and when they turn the music off you had to keep hugging that person and you know it's nothing like traumatizing. Wait, but but it might be. Pause. How long do you have to potentially hug this person? Right, that's a good question. I I don't really remember. It wasn't like a huge amount of time. But yeah, if you're having to hug someone you don't want to hug, then yeah, it's gross. Yeah, yeah. If you're hugging like a thirteen year old go- girl is hugging like uh, like I picture like me hugging Woody or like Angela. Not intended on both. Um, Well, Meredith, that's like, you know, with Mount Bachelor Academy, right? The smushing and the cuddle puddles where you have 
the right con- yeah, forced physical yeah. contact between these adult men, many of which are self-proclaimed pedophiles, with these young teenage girls who they know are already exposed to and victimized by sexual abuse of some kind. Right. Yeah. Potentially. Did you come across that in your research? Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. There's just a lot of, um, like, a lot of, and I definitely read up on the Midwest Academy situation. Um, I was really happy that that place got busted. Um, it's like mm-hmm. only about twenty years too late, but it all happened. So uh, that well, speaking of your research, because um, we did want to mention because uh, to our viewers, because a lot of our uh, or listeners really, uh, a lot of our listeners are survivors. Like probably most of them are. I feel like we haven't really broken through to people that. Um, don't have any experience with this or any knowledge of it. Uh, so with that said, I think, um, and based upon the people that we have spoken to too, um, because we're so involved in the, in, in not the industry. In the industry. The whole, I love her. The, in the industry of TTI. Elizabeth, if you didn't know. <laughs> um, so people are like, wow, so this is not a survivor's account. This is somebody who, you know, took a couple classes, you know, did a lot of research and wrote it. And I think, I don't, I think some people have an issue with it. I think people are definitely willing to read the book regardless, but I just want to get your, like your thoughts on what, um, on, on that, on how some survivors might have a problem with it. Um, and also like, what was your research? What was the book based on based upon your research? Like what research did you do? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I understand that some people, you know, might have a problem with it. I think that there are a lot of people who feel like when someone writes a story about someone else's experience that they're taking something from them. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the fact is, is that um, nobody resents Maya Salovitz for the work that she did when she interviewed, like she did all kinds of research on straight ink and on WASP programs. And she you know, she, the only difference between her and I is that she wrote a nonfiction book and that my book is fiction. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, my belief is that anybody can write whatever they want, but nobody has to read it. Um, and I, I definitely would want survivors to know that, you know, I'm not trying to like speak over them, more like mm-hmm. trying to help amplify their voices. Um, because it is something that doesn't get talked about often enough. And also, Absolutely. like, one other issue is that, you know, there are things that fiction can do that memoir can't because, and I mentioned this on Rose's podcast, is that the story of Aaron Bacon didn't get told to a wider audience, even though a movie studio bought the rights to it, because yeah. it had such a depressing ending. So, I mean, it could have reached a huge audience if someone had made a major motion picture out of it, but it didn't. And so, like, my story, not to give anything away, you know, I'm able to put whatever ending I want on it. So, I mean, it does have a potential to reach a wider audience that way. Yeah. I remember you mentioned Aaron Bacon and I didn't even like really know. And I, um, and I still haven't watched the film. I do really want to watch that film, but I, I recall thinking like, yeah, if I were as an actor and a filmmaker and a, and a creator, I don't know if I would want to watch something because, because reading your book was mildly triggering because of some of the things in it so it's like why would I want to watch a movie that's the the, this you know it's so depressing it's so triggering like I I totally kind of relate to that um and also you know 
yeah, I, I, I really understand your point. Well, may I, because I am familiar with Aaron Bacon. Um, I've watched his parents' testimony to Congress and per the note about the big movie, I agree that if they'd actually made the film, uh, Aaron Bacon would be known by more than just, you know, the few thousand or a few hundred thousand of us that are so plugged into our own survivor world that we're familiar, right, with her, our list. Um, but also, Nick Gaglia did the right thing by Aaron Bacon. The Aaron Bacon film that is available on YouTube, you can watch it anywhere. It's a short film. Nick Gaglia is a survivor. He comes out of the straight kids' world, the Mel Sembler world. Um, is he the one that made yeah, the film? Yeah, he's the filmmaker who did make the film. Oh. So what Elizabeth is talking about is the I potential see. for fiction to reach a wider audience had the made motion picture made yes. the film. But also, I'm actually, I'm personally happy with the way it turned out because I I liked the Survivor made. And also, Nick is good. Like, obviously, if the Survivor content isn't yeah. something we even want to watch because we're like, oh, God, just leave it to someone else. But Nick is a good filmmaker um, and he made it over the GW and other films as well. Aaron Bacon is my favorite film he's done. I mean, and he deliberately made it very cinema cinemagraphic. Like, it's, it's beautiful. And that's the irony of that is you have this healthy, talented, young American teenager literally slowly dying um, in this beautiful landscape. And I'm not sure that the cast and the team could have done service to someone who it's, this is a true story, you know, um, had they not been so like engaged in that world, not saying I disagree with fiction because Meredith, I agree on this. Uh, once we ask the world to listen to our stories and to talk about it, then there will be fiction. It's just how that fiction is made and you know what the intent is. Right. Yeah. Like I've, um, I started, I'm a writer too, and um, a very slow writer. <laughs> and I have started writing ideas down, and I started a screenplay for, I wanted it to be a series about the family school. But I, yeah, I, tr I tossed between, like, do I, how can I make this so that it's, like, because most of my work that I write is about, like, healing. I, I really don't like to leave a film with like, when I don't, like, learn something or, um, I mean, I like weird films, but like, like David Lynch and Fellini films, but like, I, I always would like, like my stuff because of my past, I would like it to be like the stuff that I write is like, you learn something like there's a lesson here. And, um, so I, I've tossed with like, do I make this like a documentary style kind of story or do, is there like a lesson here? So it's such a fine, such a fine line. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, um, I, but I, I really, I might not really have a place to talk because like, I haven't seen this film. I have, you know, um, not, I don't dive as deep as Miranda does, <laughs> <laughs> uh, into this. Only well, Nick but, um, film is great. Um, both of them over the, over the GW and, um, his Aaron Bacon film are great. And he, uh, actually blurbed my book. Oh, awesome. I'm going to have. A blurb oh, amazing! Yeah, I was really surprised that he actually responded to me when I emailed him. So I got a really nice note for him from him. So Girl, you should yeah, take that that is, that's really a big cool. deal because Nick is like he just got married. He's traveling the world. I don't know Nick personally, but like Meredith said, we're plugged into Survivor World, right? So you know, Jody with Sia's like you know Nick is flying his wings all over the world. So that's a big deal. That's some great support to have. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to. 
Heard that Survivor World? She's endorsed by this. Nick Aglia. We're talking <laughs> the '90s generation yes. team because there's generations in Survivor advocacy. As we're all coming to age, I think it, it takes us about 10 to 15 years to be like, "Let me join this team." And so Nick and a lot of the Elon people and the people from '90s and straight, like that's our first gen, and we've got family first gen with Liz yeah. and everybody. Well, since yeah. Meredith is bringing up the book already, we're there. Okay, so we're in this this efficacy, the book, what what's actually in the book. Um, we do have a question from Rose Cardella from the Time Out Room, our sister survivor, Rose. She's a Cross Creek, which was Wasp's first and last program. Um, if you are not familiar with that podcast, the three of us ladies are, obviously. Um, go binge it, because Rose is an inspiration for our podcast. She's been a supporter constantly for ours, and she already has her interview with Elizabeth and so we're not going to like double up on some of those questions but rose called in and left us this voicemail question for elizabeth hey guys it's rose from the timeout room um elizabeth i was so happy that you were on my show the other day i really enjoyed it and got um some really good response from it and i had a question for you um for this show and i was just wondering um, when you were doing your research, if you ever thought about instead of just doing research, um, like interviewing survivors um, and kind of getting their take on it. Um, and if you did think of that, um, what made you decide not to do that? So that's my question. Um, I can't wait to hear the answer and I can't wait to listen to this whole recording. Um, all right. I love you guys. I will talk to you soon. Bye. Um, I actually did reach out to people. I talked to some people on the Trouble Teens subreddit. Um, someone told me that, you know, responded by saying a lot of survivors are leery of requests like that. So just go read what's already out there. So that's what I did. But I did communicate with people throughout the process. That's interesting that people didn't. So people, some people didn't feel comfortable coming forward. Yeah, I think that people wow. are nervous about, you know, someone being duplicitous. Like, oh, I want your story. And then turning and, like, writing some, like, show piece or something for the industry. Right. Did you directly contact, like, Auschwitz? I mean, I know you used in your afterward. I'm not giving stuff away, you guys. In her author's note, you say that Auschwitz's testimonial video on YouTube was your inspiration for your character Treblinka. Yeah, no, I didn't reach out to her, but I definitely took note of that um, just because it's so inappropriate to nickname somebody something like that. Um, so, yeah. So what I noticed, because I read your book, um, what I noticed were I feel like so many of the stories were very specific. Like I knew I'd watched those people's stories or read their book or read their Reddit. Like, this is my story. Um, and so two parts to that is like with those people who use their very specific situations, would it um, not maybe have been a positive for you to reach out to them and, and understand how their trauma brain was working to create more depth of the character? Um, and then the second part of that, I forgot. So you can just respond to that part right now. Okay. Yeah, that does make sense. Um, I didn't really think of that just because I, you know, I didn't really, a lot of those posts are so old, I didn't really think that it would be able to reach anybody. Um, and that is, and also because I had been dissuaded and told to just go read. Um, 
So yeah, mm. that was a big part of it. Yeah, I can see how that. I, honestly, if you asked me too, I might have a year and a half ago been like, mm, probably not, because it's it's tricky to open up that box. For me, it was. For me, it was like I just told my roommate um, last night about my whole story very briefly like the five minute version and she was like really shocked and then like some people just don't I can understand some people don't want to talk about it they just want to move on with their lives um so that's kind of surprising to hear that nobody wanted to talk about it because I'm talking about it so much now (laughs) but um but also I guess I can understand because I was in that place where I, and I still think even people in my life that I've been made friends with post uh, TTI post family school don't know. I haven't really gone into much detail. Um, you know, so I remember the second part of my question. Okay. So, since, uh, okay. So <laughs> since they were like, okay. So my point with them being specific stories is girl, there's nothing in this book outside of like Grace's life before and after the school that is even fiction. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I know some of the people personally know some of the people in this book, right? Like this isn't, and, and all the stories that you're telling you, like what you've done is taken the most, like these are regular occurrences, right? Some, most of them aren't things that just happened to one individual person. They happened at, you know, this thing happened at Tranquility Bay to probably hundreds of different people that went through that program. Right. So what, why is it fiction in the, like, why is it even categorized as fiction? Like what, what happened there? Um, Well, it's fiction because, I mean, it's fictionalized because, you know, you can take a lot of events from history and turn them into fiction. Um, You know, you can, because it have you know, I'm not like writing um, from the, you know, not like, it's not like I just like copy and pasted, you know, people's um, testimonials. I mean, like, I really process it through the eyes of my character who is fiction and um you know a lot of the settings you know I had to create um I mean there are like certain details that you know I definitely wove in from um you know various online testimonials that I read but um yeah it's definitely I mean you know it is written through you know it's written through the lens of you know it's a, a character who is not real and so like I mean there's so many so much historical fiction out there takes people who you know stories mm-hmm. who were real and makes it into a fictional world mm-hmm. and you know Epiphany Lake Academy and, and Mystic Bay are not were not real places. I mean, they're based on real places. They're not real places. Um, and so there were things that I was able to, you know, able to explore that didn't come from the real world. Um, but yeah. Well, per your mm-hmm. Through the Eyes of Grace, um, we actually have another voice message question from our Reddit world for you. Um, so let's do that now. Since you are not a survivor, I wonder how you place yourself in Grace's shoes. Is there a process or method you use to channel the internal dialogue of a survivor? Right. So I 
it had a lot to do with what I read um, in various testimonials and also going back to my um, psychology studies from college that definitely informed a lot of um, the way Grace thinks and the way she acts Um, and you know a lot of it was just sort of instinct I mean just thinking about how you know I would feel if I was in her shoes and I had you know something in my life that I didn't want to talk about or something that where people had not listened to me about um, it definitely would make me distance myself from people and you know one thing that comes to mind is my professor said that it's a myth that you have to be exactly like someone in order to understand them. And I think that extends to a lot of things. I think that people are capable of imagining and understanding at a far greater capacity than we give them and ourselves credit for. And I think a lot of the reason why if somebody doesn't believe you, it has more to do with them for whatever reason, not being able to process that information. And it's not because they're not capable. It has more to do with, them not wanting to like they don't have the it's not like they don't have the mental capacity it's more like they don't have the will because for whatever reason they can't accept that information so that's kind of how I was able to um, put myself in those shoes so are you suggesting this Mm -hmm. is really interesting I I, like I'm actually tickled um that it's a like a like that for people trying to relate to someone else's trauma that it could be a willful denial, like they're just not willing to handle the magnitude of that emotional spectrum? Yeah, absolutely. I think for a lot of people, I mean, it can be a lot to take in at once, which I think is a big part of it. But also I think there are people who like to be the hero of their own, you know, their own Greek tragedy and don't want to let in the information of they don't want to take in someone else's information because then they would have to like have the spotlight go off Mm -hmm. of them. You know what I mean? Um, So I think there's a lot of things at play. Um, So I don't really think that people, and why do we read books? Why do we watch movies? All that stuff is about understanding other people's experiences. We're all capable of it. We all do it all the time. It's, and so if other people are telling you know, if other people are saying, like, you're wrong, like, you're lying, or what, you know, I can't believe that happened, or I don't believe you, it really, I think, has more to do with something that's going on with them, Um, either, like, you know, they feel like they can't cross, like, can't, like, maybe, like, they don't know what to say, and so rather than admit that they have, like, this like, that they have a fault that, like, oh, I don't know what to say to this person. I'm, like, feeling awkward and stupid rather than just admit that. They'll just be, like, that didn't happen. You know what I mean? So I think there's just a lot of different things at play when people are, you know, not listening. But I don't think it's a lack of imagination. I do think it's a, a lack of emotional intelligence, mm. maybe. That's profound. That's very interesting. I'm sure we'll actually have lots of social psychology on that moving forward. That's you want to, like, bring up your Reddit <laughs> questions then so we can all just sit here? Yeah, let's do it. Kai7Yak wrote, Is the book just focused on the experience while, the- while there, or is there a future, quote-unquote, aspect where we see how TTI has affected their adult self as well? Ooh, good question. <laughs> yes, um, the novel weaves together her present and her past. So the novel opens on Grace when she's in her 30s. 
and then it flashes back to when she's 14. So we get to see both her as an adult and as a teenager. Um, and we get to see her kind of working through her fear of connecting with people. Um, and we also get to see her reaching out to other survivors online. Um, they created a fictional um, survivor website in the book. It's called Survivors of the Shadows, where she connects with other survivors who encourage her to mm-hmm. do the things that she does. Like, for instance, she's, she gets into Brazilian jiu-jitsu um, and makes friends that way. And so, yeah, definitely I wanted to show the long-term effects of the program and um, show how she could um, get to a point where, you know, she's able to realize that just because she's successful doesn't mean that her time in the program is justified. And that's a big part of it. Awesome. Thank you on the Trouble Teen subreddit, which is, I imagine, is that where you got, what you based your Survivor's website on? <laughs> okay, yeah, cool. Much. Shout out to Trouble Teen subreddit. So from that subreddit, uh, you have a question from Crow Oath, and it says, could Elizabeth provide any trigger or content warnings? I can handle most content. I'm just concerned for others. Thanks for telling us about the novel. I look forward to it. Um, I could, I mean, they're not, I mean, the book's are already going to print, so it's not like they're going to be in the print edition, but yeah, I mean, if people are, like, they don't want to read about seminars, they would definitely maybe skip the life chapter, um, it's on, starts on page 121, um, and there is also, you know, when she, in the latter half of the book, when she gets to the facility that's out of the country, people might want to that part as well um i think that maybe to really avoid triggers maybe read the adult chapters because those don't go quite as far into the weeds as the flashback chapters do the trigger warning we we just warned you about we're actually going to include it in our podcast (laughs) yeah we asked you it was our favorite part so elizabeth's going to read an excerpt from um a more triggering part i guess so trigger warning uh if you need to turn it off you know, you have fair warning. So, um, Elizabeth, whenever you're ready. Later that day, they gathered the girls and boys together. Most of the time, therapy was sitting around in a circle calling each other ungrateful sluts. But every few months, they brought everyone together for a seminar. The seminars lasted for hours, starting at 10 in the morning and stretching late into the night until we marched back to our cabins, feeling exhausted and hollow. We folded up all of the tables and chairs in the cafeteria and moved them aside. With all of us kids crammed into the cafeteria, the room shrank very quickly. We sat on the cold floor and pretended it wasn't making our ass cheeks fall asleep. That was the day we played the Titanic game. Patrice, one of the therapists on staff, told us all to lie down on the floor and shut our eyes. She told us to imagine we were on the deck of a ship feeling the sun on our faces. The water is a clear blue, she said, her voice low and soothing. It matches the sky above. Feel the cool wind on your face. Grip the deck rail with your hands and feel the power of the ship's engines speeding forward. You're an immigrant dreaming of a new life in America. You're full of excitement and hope. Your heart is full of dreams. 
I breathed in deeply, and with my eyes shut tight, I imagined I was Kate Winslet making out with Leonardo DiCaprio on the bow while the ship sailed into the sunset. I sank into my reverie, rewriting history as my mind drifted. The telegraph operator on the Californian stays on duty just 15 minutes longer and receives the Titanic's distress calls. The Californian steams at full speed and brings all of the Titanic passengers on board. From the deck of the Californian, Jack and Rose watch the Titanic slip under the water. A few days later, the ship arrives in New York Harbor. Jack and Rose get off together. They go to Coney Island, holding hands on the Ferris wheel as they smile into the sun. Suddenly, there was a loud crashing sound. My eyes snapped open and Patrice, Crandall, and other staff were banging their hands on tables in unison. I felt sleepy, confused. The ship is sinking, Crandall shouted angrily. The sound of his voice made a shudder cascade down my spine. There aren't enough lifeboats. If you want to live, you'll have to fight for your life. We were each given one minute to stand on a chair and give a speech, defending our right to live. I stood in a long line, waiting for my turn. I didn't listen to the other kids' speeches. I was too nervous. My heart was beating fast like it did when they made us do hundreds of jumping jacks. I suddenly wished we were doing jumping jacks instead of playing this game, though I wasn't sure why. When it was my turn to stand on the chair, my throat tightened and my knees shook. I felt the hard, smooth surface of the chair through my dirty socks. The clock is ticking, Catrice barked. Does your life mean so little to you that you won't speak up for it? Not a single word formed in my mind. 45 seconds, Patrice barked again. Open your mouth or you'll die. Out of some corner of my memory, I remembered a poem by Irina Ratushinskaya that I memorized to recite for Mr. Kiong's class. I took a deep breath and loudly as I could, I recited the poem aloud. I will live and survive. I will tell of the best people in all the earth, the most tender, but also the most invincible, how they said farewell, how they waited for letters from their loved ones. And I'll be asked, what helped us to live when there were neither letters nor any news? And I will tell of the first beauty I saw, a frost-covered window, a blue radiance on a tiny pane of glass. When I finished, my throat was dry, almost sore. I glanced at Patrice. She looked up at me and twisted her face. I couldn't tell what she thought of the poem, but at least she didn't yell. She simply nodded, which meant I could step down and it was the next person's turn. After everyone had given their speech, it was time to vote. Crandall chose one girl out of the crowd and made the rest of us get into a single file line that snaked around the perimeter of the room. We were supposed to walk up to her one by one and wait for her to say live or die she could only vote to save three people. Live, she said to the first person in front of her. Her voice seemed small and far away. I was all the way in the back of the room. Live, she said again. Live. Everyone who walked up to her got to live until Crandall said, that's it, that's three. He stared the girl down, his eyes narrow. Do you know what your mistake was, he asked. She shook her head. Her eyes began to shine. You filled the boat, but you didn't save yourself. I, doesn't your life mean anything to you? Are you really that ungrateful? The girl looked confused as she furiously rubbed her eyes. No, she said weakly. 
Crandall bent low and drew his face very close to hers. You're pathetic, he spat. If you think your life is worthless, you're worthless. Get to the back of the line. I watched her take her place on the back of the line. She wrapped her arms around herself and cried, her head hanging. Every day you make choices, Crandall bellowed. When you choose drugs, you choose death. When you choose sex, you choose death. When you disobey your parents or skip school, you choose death. What choices will you make today? The game went on for so long, I had no idea what time it was. I was hungry. My feet hurt from standing on them. Titanic continued to play in my head. Rose leapt from the lifeboat and ran through the corridors of the sinking ship, just so she could be with Jack as long as possible. Jack kissed her and told her she was stupid for throwing away her seat on the lifeboat. At the front of the line, a tall boy with broad football player shoulders burst into tears when a girl screamed, die, in his face. Crandall would have agreed with Jack. He would have said that Rose was an ungrateful brat for jumping off the lifeboat. Off the lifeboat. Was he right? I had watched Titanic in my mind twice by the time I got close to the front of the line. A boy told me to live. I felt a rush of joy. This boy I'd never seen before thought I deserved to live. I wanted to throw my arms around him and kiss him, but I didn't. But I knew we'd both end up in the shed if I'd done that. Finally, it was my turn to fill the lifeboat. My body was buzzing because we'd been playing this game for an entire day and I hadn't eaten since the watery oatmeal. I knew I had to save myself. I knew I had to choose survivors carefully. The first person who walked up to me was a thin blonde girl who looked at me with zombie eyes. I knew she was tired and hungry like everyone else, but because there was no spark in her eyes, I shouted, Die! She walked to the back of the line, the look in her eyes unchanged. The next was a boy. He had blue eyes like Leonardo DiCaprio, so I let him live. Before I could decide the next person's fate, a small boy, no more than 12 years old, Patrice stood behind me. Imagine this person is your mother, she said to me. Every time you disrespected your mother, you told her to die. How many times did you tell your family to die? Will you tell your mother to die again? My mind flashed on the night my mother came after me with scissors and threatened to cut the blue dye out of my hair. Rage flared up in my chest. Die, I shouted. The boy's face crumpled and his narrow body shook as he cried. I only had two more live boats. I needed one to save myself, and I was saving the other one for Julie. She stood in line, her arms crossed, her face stained with tears. There were 30 people between us. Die, I shouted. I watched their expressions change every time I shouted. I made a game of it, counting the faces that changed and the ones that didn't. Finally, Julie stood in front of me. I looked straight into her wet eyes. I didn't see sadness or hope, only a question. Will I live or die, Grace? Live, I shouted, using as much of my voice as I had left. Julie lives, she shouted, tossing her hair and turning her face up to the ceiling. I pointed to myself. Live, I went to the back of the line. The voting dragged on for hours. When it was finally over, we were all exhausted and starving. Before we were allowed to leave, Patrice walked around the room with a mirror, pausing in front of each person. This is a mirror of your life. Every day, you vote for yourself to live, or you vote for yourself to die. Tomorrow, what will your vote be? As she held 
the mirror up to my face. I saw for the first I saw myself for the first time in months. There was all this negative space where my cheeks and eyes used to be. Darkness was slowly swallowing me up. Wow, girl. Is that it? <laughs> yeah. I just like started welling up a little because that was just like one Came because the Titanic was part of my childhood. <laughs> Every yeah, how people can fit over. on that door, you guys. Like, just one on either side. Come on, it's a seesaw. <laughs> Fuck, what up? Use it like a it big kickboard. It was so big it could have fit. Yeah, that's a, that's a very big controversy that um, what's his name has been talked. To. It's been talked about for years. Like, Look what you've done. We we've just gone off the deep end with that of. one. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't want to get too much into the uh, <laughs> details of seminars or any of this stuff. Firstly, there's your book, obviously. And for people who aren't familiar with the Lifeboat or other WASP seminars, specifically, you know, as Spring Creek Cross, like jazz like that, um, uh, Rose has a seminars episode. So she goes over this in detail. But what was awesome reading your book, and I told Rose this when we were talking the other day after I listened to your episode with her on the timeout room was um, – you know, we can tell people what happened to us on these podcasts all we want, but there's something different when you're either watching a movie, a show, or reading a book where you're creating these characters and these scenes in your own mind, um, and it overtakes you. It's different than a mm. friend telling you something that happened to them where you're focused on, oh my God, I love Rose. I can't believe this happened to Rose. And you just focus on that. You can't put yourself in those shoes. And so reading this chapter in your book, um, I hit up Rose immediately and I was like, oh my God, like I totally get it now. Like I didn't understand seminars and the power psychologically that seminars had you know with the sleep deprivation and with the psychological control mm. and the genuine psychological fear of death in these prefrontal cortexes that aren't even developed yet so um thank you so much though because i feel like mm. this also as a writer i feel like you put a lot into that chapter and it shows oh thank you yeah um something i thought was interesting too about your book um was how now I didn't experience this kind this much violence. Um, I appreciate that you put a lot of that in there because some of these kids were, I mean, I've seen multiple kids just get straight up thrown to the ground literally. Cause there's a part in the beginning where um, I don't know if she's flashing back or, you know, she, her fate, like the, they like smash her face into the carpet um, and whatnot. And I'm like, I saw so many kids just get tossed to the ground, literally, um, these big giant men that were, you know, they, and they got all the men too. It wasn't like they were going to get the small dainty women to like tackle these people to the ground and like literally would sit on them. And sometimes it would last up to an hour. I mean, depending on how willing the kid was to cooperate and to go wherever they were going to take them. And so I appreciate that you really went there. Like you really showed the violent aspects. I didn't experience as much violence. Um, but I know that some of these other programs, especially like wilderness programs, the, the camps in the mountains, that kind of shit um, was particularly violent. So I appreciate you going there because 
I know some people might be triggered by it. I know some people might read it who have. Oh, it's all true. They're like, what the fuck? This can't be true. It's like, I know that it's fiction. I think the only reason it really is fiction is if you do one of these in the future, work with the survivors from that community so that you can literally be like, this is true. The only part of this that isn't true is this one character, Grace, who is what we're using to look through. But all of these other testimonies are true here because there's nothing, there's not a single thing that you use that we all don't already know about you know this is all fact-based and it's so graphic yeah and you make a really good point in your outro on your author's note it's like because it's so over the top it's hard to believe um but that's just this is true it's tranquility bay yeah so mystic bay it's tranquility bay duh right but what else is it because you put a couple schools into it Per the whole, the psych jazz that we're talking about, I did have a question um, about the way that you utilized flashbacks in this book. And I don't know how much of your psychology they did with the separation of PTSD from CPTSD, because I know that that is still in its evolution of sovereignty, right? Um, But I personally reading Grace's flashbacks, it felt very much PTSD, like military-esque flashbacks, like the out-of-body, whereas for me personally, at least in my own experience with CPTSD, which is uh, most of what us from this experience get diagnosed with, and myself included, I have more somatic flashbacks, you know, um, and all that jazz. So I'm interested if you, like, knew about the difference, if it was a factor, um, what your opinion is on all that jazz. Actually, yeah, no, that is something that I learned about just now. So um, thank you for that. Totally, thank girl. Yeah, got later. you. Yeah, CPTSD, especially when it's like a complex trauma, these long-term exposure to stress hormones, and especially when we're looking at child abuse, that CPTSD, because my daddy is uh, was a 17-year-old in Vietnam, you know, from Texas Marine, you know, and his experience with his PTSD, which he's 100% disabled with PTSD, is very different from my experience with my complex trauma. Well, girl, I can't wait to see how you like when you take on complex trauma next, like how you create because, you know, because this is like a first person (laughs) narrative in the mind kind of a book, you know, so I'm always excited when people are going to like go into trauma brain from that perspective. For sure. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, um, okay. So are there any other things that you want to make sure that our audience knows about your book? I am going to end with a couple last minute questions, but I just want to make sure that you have all the room to like go into anything important. Sure. Yeah, I am. So the book is, it comes out on April 1st and I chose that date because I wanted it to coincide with the anniversary of a program closing. And the only one with a specific date that I could find was Elan. So um, it is. It comes out on the anniversary of the shuttering of the notorious Elan School. Um, and I also chose April because April is um, National Child Abuse Awareness Month. I think I might have like a slightly mm. different name. But um, yeah, so April 1st, and there are reasons behind choosing that date. Um, and yeah, I definitely hope that people um, and survivors in particular read this book in, in the spirit that it was intended. I'm definitely, you know, wanted to help amplify stories and not talk over them. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, I also think that people should read about residential schools that were forced, that yes. Americans were forced to attend. 
that's definitely something to look. I mean, uh, Connie Walker of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation has a really great podcast in called Finding Cleo. And, um, and I haven't read it, but I know that Colson Whitehead has a book about two black males in the 60s that go to a reform school. Um, so, oh, wow. I didn't know. Yeah. yeah I love Colson. Oh, yeah. Called the Nickel. The Nickel yes, Boys, I haven't read I that. I haven't read that. I'm so sorry. Yes, but yeah, someone right. sent it to me. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. So High Impact. Okay. Was High Impact had the cages. Um, and a little bit of Escuela Caribe, but not really. Um, so I really didn't want to get into like religion. Um, I definitely kept that out. Um, so I, from what I understand, I know that Wasp had something like some aspect of Mormonism to it, but I just, I really mm-hmm. wanted to focus more on the secular because I feel like whether you send your kid away because they aren't being Christian enough or you send them away because they dyed their hair purple it's all about control. And I think that really stripping away religious issues kind of helps drill down to that. Because yeah. It's really all about parental control. It kind of goes back to the Stanford prison. Well, it's all social psychology, that, like, right? Like all of this behavior control. modification. Oh, wow. You haven't read it yet either, but I mean, there's a lot out there. I and, mean, you know, putting kids in cages is not new. It's something that America has been doing since forever. And um, so I think that it is important for us to familiarize ourselves with yeah absolutely you really did your due diligence and your research yeah on it, and you which know, it's like, great i hope that like no one out there will be like i mean i'm sure like there are going to be people who are angry at me for whatever reason but i hope that no one right is right be, like angry or hurt by this because that was not the intention the intention was to get people to talk about it because it's it exists as an open secret and um, you know, it's been going on and it just never seems to end. I mean, even here in the twin cities, twin cities, we have a program called teen challenge, which I believe has ties back to Mel Sembler and people are constantly donating money to it. Like it's some kind of a charity and it might be kind of terrible. I mean, I don't know that much about it. Um, Mm. I kind of, uh, I've tried, but, I, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's just, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, yeah, I hope that people will um, see what I'm trying to do here and, you know, get where, uh, what I'm trying to. Well, I think we do. Um, do. You know, that's why I really yeah. want us to have this conversation with you because I think, you know, anytime that you go in, especially to some community that either is legitimately or feels legitimately marginalized and unheard and unvalidated, that it is important, like your book, and for there to be more books like your books, it's important to have that if we're going to try to grow general awareness. And I don't want you or authors like yourself or filmmakers like yourselves to feel like they can't come to this community. We do want our voices heard and we do want as many platforms as possible. I just, I think that the conversation, the reason we're having this is because, you know, even with you yourself moving forward, hey, I hope you do another book. And I hope this time, that you'll work with the survivor community will give you access. You know, there's plenty of people who do want to talk to you and then girl, you can publish it as non freaking fiction and seriously. And then we can take your writing <laughs> skills and your ability to take something and push it forward because this is, you know, people freak out. Um, and I do this the same, especially as a documentary filmmaker when people are making documentaries. Um, and it's like, just because this book is happening doesn't mean there's no room for your book, but 
people that are suffering trauma to speak and to face and to like express these inexpressible traumas. You know, it's taken most of us who are working on those projects 15 years to get 10 pages in. You know, this is real therapy work that has to get done. And so we do need allies from the outside. Other words, we're, this is never going to change. Kids will always be in cages in America. I also want to say too, though, and and more to survivors, people listening to this podcast, that they should tell their stories. Um, you know, we should, you know, be screaming from the mountaintops because there are still kids experiencing exactly what this book s- says. So, you know, with that said, I would encourage people listening to tell their stories. You know, me, Miranda, Rose, and other people, the Breaking Code Silence um, ladies, you know, we're all out there trying to raise awareness. And I think, you know, the, the, le- the more time you spend not talking about it, well, one, you're hoarding all those painful feelings and all that post-traumatic stress, and you're not working through it. And also, I think, I think, this is my opinion, you can, you know, um, all, the, all the people online can uh, tweet me and, you know, throw apples and shit at me. But I think that we have a responsibility to tell our stories because we need to save other people. You know, we need to, I know that survivor as well from NIFA, unfortunately, but fortunately, and doesn't that show you something about what these programs can produce in a sociopath? Absolutely. Exactly. So I think like, you know, we have all these other things that are kind of distracting us, but there are people out there that are trying to talk and get, talk to Congress people um, to get bills passed. There's been a bill floating around for like a decade now that just nobody is paying attention to. Um, and there's one, state, oh, there's three now. one state, but yeah, state of Alabama of all states that has passed, that has passed regulations um, that truly make a dent in some of these that, that change some of the laws that really make it hard for these places to prey on young people. But like, there's still so much more that we're just um, at the beginning, I baby. I mean, this has been go survivors um, for generations, you know. as we've mentioned, have been working on yeah. this. But I think we're finally at the point where this civil rights movement is positioned to be heard. Um, I mean, yeah. it's it's a fiction. I mean, it's a book that you know it's made for readers, basically. Um, so, I mean, I guess I don't really know what a book for survivors would look like. Um, I know that sounds like some kind of like self-help type thing. Um, really, it's just, you know, I'm a fiction writer. It's what I've been doing since second grade. Um, I wrote like three other manuscripts before I wrote this one. Uh, this is just the first one I've gotten published. Um, so, I mean, it is, it's for people who like to read literary fiction, um, essentially. The next thing I am planning to do is going to be more of a period piece about the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League um, in its final years. Um, So I'm going to be going in a different direction. But um, yeah, I think this is, I mean, it's, it's a book for, for readers of any stripe. I mean, I, I know that a lot of survivors who have triggers probably won't want to read it. And I totally respect that. Um, But I mean, there are a lot of people who don't know anything about the industry who will learn from it um and in that way it can 
in that way, it's for survivors because it contributes to the raising of the general awareness. It's for the movement, but not necessarily designed with them as the target audience. And your book will help with that, Elizabeth. So, I mean, especially because uh, hopefully people will read it who have no familiarity and they're like, this is absolute lying fiction trash. Like, I hope they read your graphic violence with true (laughs) stories that happen in Tranquility Bay. And they are just like, like you said, with this willful refusal to face the like the absolute magnanimity of this emotional intelligence that they don't possess because all of this is true and that's kind that's where the, all the controversy lies is in the truth of it and the fact that you know we're able to have this conversation so i'm i'm glad that the book exists and i do hope that you will do more in the future and i hope moving forward we can all support you and work together but is this book even made for survivors because i'm not sure that it is yeah, I actually think that that's like survivors are not the target. Think too. <laughs> think. And in in a way, I think that's kind of a good thing because survivors are like, you know, it's hard for to get the general public to believe us, right? Like that cannot be, that can't be true. Well, look, we've got an outsider. Meredith you know, was like, this, her, so this is a movie. That's, you know, those mystery movies. <laughs> No, because, like, I just think that's where, like, I mean, maybe you know, Meredith is going to hit him uh, up. Spielberg interested. I don't know. Like, what? Awesome. Steven Spielberg, if you're listening. <laughs> um, we have a oh few God, survivors so of the family school that are in the film industry. So well, maybe we can talk speaking to of other films coming out but, and other media projects, yeah, um, um, I, I did want to make sure that I asked this last these last questions. Okay, so I was really interested. I Firstly, I did not know that Elon shut down on April Fool's Day, by the way. So just pause on that. That's kind of magical. Um, Okay, but one of the characters (laughs) in the book, you have some characters that are public figures, if you will. Um, And one of them, the movie star's daughter, have no idea who she is. There's like, who the fuck is that, right? Because I'm sure way too many movie stars send their children to these programs, especially like senators do. Um, But one of them was kind of obvious. So um, I'm wondering, like, what was the difference with the consideration to name like a public figure, something that is completely ambiguous. And the other one was like, it was obvious that that's who it was. Hmm, that is a good question because I'm not entirely. So tell her when, yeah. with the other one being the thin blonde um, spoiled. Oh yeah. No, that was actually, and- not, I didn't. That was not intentional. Um, I was not thinking about when I wrote that. Um, really? Um, no, it says it just says that wasn't. You didn't mean her. Wait, it says I don't remember that. Sorry, I wrote this like yeah. I finished this like two years ago. <laughs> well, I mean, regardless, just because um, it totally is actually coming out with her own story. Um, in may right or in april she's actually did a documentary on this whole half half of it yeah she's like coming out of the closet with this this. being an issue that she's looking to start championing but she's not really coming out of the clock she is yeah well she's coming out with her own she's actually going to tell her own story but it's been kind of like an open book secret because other people have online have outed her, have said, yes, I went to this school. She was there. This was before, you know, she became who she is. 
Um, so she's so it's kind of like this underground secret, like especially it is now. And I know that there have been whispers before, but that's the whole Um, thing with the efficacy of it. It's like who, especially when you're in a position where people know who you are, like if she's coming out on her own, yeah. But if that's a happy coincidence, not a happy coincidence, sorry, if that's just a coincidence, then that is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, pretty sure that it was. I, to be honest, don't really remember. Um, I mean, I was aware that some famous people had been to places like that. Um, and, you know, a lot of famous rich people are thin and blonde. I, so, I know, but but that's um, my point. Like, if it had just been thin, blonde, so rich girl, like, I wouldn't know who that was. <laughs> just like with the movie star's daughter, I had no idea who that was. I still don't, right? That was, yeah, it wasn't. All right. So that's the answer. It's a happy coincidence. And then the last question we had from the internet uh, was, are a portion of the profits of this book going to go to support survivors in some way or fighting the troubled teen industry? Ooh. Um, So, yeah, I, so this is not self-published. This was published by a press in um, Los Angeles, and I don't really have control over where the money goes. Um, and like, to be quite honest, books really don't make that much money. Um, so it's yeah. not like, unless you're like Harlan Coben yeah. or, so you know, yeah, we're Stephen not going to be like breaking <laughs> in dough over here. Like there's, I'll be lucky to see any, um, um, you know, and it's especially because like, it's, it's a very new press. I mean, they're doing a lot of great work, but they're very new. And so it's a lot harder when you're going up against, um, I guess I don't want to get into the weeds on publish industry stuff, but yeah, there's just uh, it's a lot harder for small presses. So su- support small presses for sure. But yeah, um, there is. Yeah. <laughs> well, then if you're not going to get rich off this, Elizabeth, you want to remind us why you're doing this, why you wrote this book? <laughs> um, yeah, because I'm a writer. It's what I do. Um, nobody. I think it's uh, being a writer's part of a big part of it is like being a little bit crazy um, because you're kind of spend a lot of time doing things that you know might never come to fruition like I said like I have other manuscripts that I've never published um, so it's it's something that you do when you feel it burning inside and you just have to do it um, so I mean I'm hoping that this book yeah. will lead me to um, a more you know lead me to a career where I can write full-time and I don't have to work other jobs um you know hoping this gets my foot in the door and if I do make a lot of money um then maybe I can contribute then but um yeah at this point my my words well thank you um I I do think they may stand for themselves amazing all right Elizabeth well thank you so much um yeah yeah, this is we just amazing. like to talk over and ourselves, you guys, so that we can like okay. really upset everyone as they're listening to us driving home later. <laughs> no, but yeah, we just wanted to thank you for coming on, and we yeah. do absolutely, of course, <laughs> wish you the best with your book, and we do appreciate you choosing to give any platform to the troubled teen industry because, honey, even if it's a debate, even if if this is the most trigger happy, controversial thing to happen this year for our little world, which I assure you it is not. Um, 
if, if this is going to spark a conversation, then we can use that. We need that, hmm. you know, and, and we do need to hash out how we feel about all this stuff within our own communities mm-hmm. and at, for, with the public, because you're not wrong. It's in our freaking trailer for our podcast. Kids in cages is historically American and we need to see that end. Absolutely. hundred percent. So pretty positive we fell at least a little bit short of accomplishing the impossible by asking all of the questions that need to be placed on this table. This is an ongoing conversation, both for ourselves, with just ourselves, with our expanded community, and the extended collective community of the general public about how we tell these stories, who tells these stories, and uh, really what is the purpose of storytelling, truth-telling, creating an oral history and coming before the community to try to get some level of reform. As you heard earlier in our dedication for today, today's episode, totally not the right one, but it was the one we were recording today, nonetheless, is dedicated to our brother from the Family Foundation School, Brandon. Uh, We will be addressing this and the fact that our lost family tree from the Family Foundation School just will not keep growing uh the roots are rotting and falling off and on fire and we have to do something about this that's why the new york times article happened it's because we are just consistently losing the kids that we grew up with um you know and and got beat down with and so it makes sense so moving into the next few days we hope that survivors especially from our school who are dealing with this loss will reach out for some help there is sia organization and unbroken that can get you access to mental health support if you don't have that Um, but the survivor community is pretty tight so reach out to your brothers and sisters because we don't want to be adding any other names or any numbers these aren't casualties this kind of a toll um, it's not consequential it's not acceptable and there will be no room for conversation that is remotely victim blaming for Brandon or any other children that come out of these programs traumatized don't want to hear that they were, you know, a more likely consequence of culture breakdown because they weren't being obedient as children or they were doing drugs or having sex or anything that they were doing as young children. Uh, What we're looking at is fallout from these social experiments gone wild. And Brandon, just like the rest of the people that are on that list nationally and globally, they were failed by their families and their communities. And now we're part of that community. We have grown up. And so there isn't any room for anybody was participating in any risky behavior. I get it. Like we're, we're not daft here, but the point is that these people would not be in these positions and they'd be better apt to deal with life as it stands or the complexities of the life that they walked into these programs with already if they weren't tortured and systemically abused within behavior modification uh, pandemic that is going on in the United States of America and has since the beginning of the founding of this country. So we hope you'll join us um, in our advocacy to reform and seek justice for our brothers and sisters. And if you are one of us, we really, really hope that you'll engage with whatever part of our community or your community is beneficial to you at this time. And so for Brandon, um, we're going to keep moving forward and we're going to address that more directly very very soon.